Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brian, for that reading of Scripture. Why don't we pray one more time, ask the Lord to really bless our time now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the glories of your grace. Lord, we thank you that we can rest in that truth, Lord. We can we can find peace for our soul, knowing that you have washed us with the blood of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, what a glorious reality that is for us, knowing that what that means is we have been forgiven, we have been cleansed, our sin has been atoned for, the wrath of God has been removed, and now we stand in the glorious freedom as Christ's free men. And so, Lord, we thank you that you delivered us and you released us from the bondage of our sin. And Father, we pray that those that have been set free, as Paul says, that they would no longer live for themselves, but that we would live for the one who died for us. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would come to have that effectual work in our lives that we are looking at today here in this passage of Scripture. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now to avail ourselves to your truth, that we would open our mind, our heart, our lives to be affected by the revelation of who you are and the manifestation of your will for our lives. We thank you, Lord, that it is not grounded in subjectivism today. We thank you that it's not a hidden thing, but that your revelation is clear and that Your Word has been inscripturated for us in a book, and that we have that book now, and that we can take that book, and that we can take it into the bosom of our heart, and that we can cherish and treasure Your Word. And so, Father, as we treasure Your Word, we pray that Your Word would have its work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this verse is monumental uh, in the book of Thessalonians in this letter. Really, it is a high point of the letter. Uh, It's sort of the culmination of everything that's gone before us here in Thessalonians so far. The Apostle Paul is celebrating really the work that God has done among the Thessalonians. And what we're looking at here is genuine salvation, genuine regeneration, There has been authentic conversion. And so the Apostle Paul is thanking God that the Word of God has taken root, has taken hold of their hearts. You know, as we think about what Paul is saying here, we're drawn to the phrase here, if you would look with me, we're really drawn to the phrase here that speaks about the Word of God not only being received and accepted, but also the effectual power of the Word of God. It says, The Word of God, that's the subject, it performs its work. And that's that's really the burden of my message today, is knowing that the Word of God is this effectual, powerful, dynamic work, uh, that it performs its work, I'd like to talk about how we can best benefit from the Word of God. How do we benefit from Scripture the most? I think that's sort of... The burden. I mean, it's sort of incalculable how important the Bible is to our lives, right? Uh, I remember what Moses 
told the children of Israel there at the latter end of his life, he tells them in Deuteronomy 32, he says, this word is not futile for you. This word is not a vain thing for you. It is not a trifle for you. It is your life. Think about it. This is Israel at a time getting ready, moving forward, and they're standing on the precipice of the unknown. Their leader, their covenant mediator, Moses, is getting ready to drop off the scene and not knowing where they're going to go from here and how God is going to lead them. And Moses leaves them with perhaps the most important advice of all. View the Word of God as your life and not as a vain, trifle, normal thing. It's to have preeminence in the life of the covenant community of God's people. And it's to have preeminence in our lives today. The same preeminence that they had. It's to have that today. Every season of our lives, brothers and sisters, should be informed by the Word of God. And really what you're learning to do in Christianity as a Christian, uh, like the Thessalonians, having been converted by the Word of God, what we're now learning to do is learning to be conformed by the Word of God into the image of of God's Son. That's what we're doing. We're learning to apply the Word of God to every aspect of our lives. Every season, every sphere of life, every vocation, every aspect of our rising and our sleeping, our our taking, our giving, our working, our resting, everything, our coming and going, everything has to be informed by the Word of God. That's really what the Word of God is for, and it has that incredible ability. Now, let's think about the context here. You turn to th- uh, back to Thessalonians with me if you went to Deuteronomy. But if you go back to th- uh, Thessalonians, think about the context of what's going on here. Um, Paul is going to focus on the Word of God being either accepted or rejected. It is accepted by those, as he says there at the end of the verse, who are of faith, uh, uh, those who believe. It is rejected, here in this context, by those who persecute those who believe. And so we're going to see that, how the Thessalonians, in fact, endured persecution. And then Paul talks about his own personal experience from the Jewish people, the the Jewish uh, uh, state, the Jewish nation that persecuted him. And so we see that Paul is demonstrating that when the Word of God takes hold in your life, you're going to be persecuted for it. And the Thessalonians were no strangers to that, just like Paul was not a stranger to that. But we're really seeing the faithful reception of the Word of God. It's uh, why he gives thanks. It's why he gives thanks. Now, as I mentioned, I want to talk about how we can benefit from Scripture the most. And I identified three things. Wouldn't you know it? Three things. I identified three different ways that we can benefit from Scripture the most. You ready? Number one, we benefit from Scripture the most when Scripture is received under proper authority. You may say, what? Where? Well, look at the text. Um, it says, for, I, for this reason, Paul says, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the Word of God, here it is here, which you heard from us. Which you heard from us. In other words, the Thessalonians did not come upon Christianity on their own. They did not seek out God's Word, God's revelation, the gospel truth, the gospel of Christ. 
in isolation on their own. But no, rather they were brought into the stream of apostolic tradition. They were brought into the official apostolic church and that is where they receive the Word of God. And that reminds me that that's what God's will is for us. It's not for us just simply to be on our own seeking some spiritual adventure on our own. No, absolutely not. That's the opposite of God's will for His people. Those who believe are actually brought into the community of God's people and that is where we are made to flourish the most. Now, this is interesting. There is a phrase here in verse 13 that he opens up with. He says, for this reason, uh, uh, diatuta is the little Greek phrase. It's actually, I say it's in the Greek phrase because once you know it, some translations like the NIV, they don't even include this in their translation. They just drop it all together. They don't even mention it. It's even there. Um, That's not good because... For this reason is a major, major link in the context. Because you're going to ask the question, well, for what reason? (laughs) Paul says, for this reason, what reason is that? Now, let me suggest to you that the reason he's so thankful is twofold. He's thankful because he's going to go on to prove they persevered under persecution. But he's also thankful because he did not run in vain. He's thankful because he did everything he needed to do in order for the the Word of God to flourish among these Thessalonians. That's what chapter uh, 2 in the context, verses 1, well, really all the way down to verse 12, that's what it's all about. It's about Paul having labored among them and having plowed the ground, as it were. He laid the foundation, as it were, like a master builder. He sort of, he, he laid a proper gospel foundation where their faith can grow, and now their faith is growing, and he is thankful for it. Uh, in other words, when proper biblical ministry has been laid, the, the only proper response is faith. And when that happens, it results in worship. You know, some time ago I looked into China's ghost cities. Have you heard of this? You can see this on YouTube. Uh, Apparently, in China, in various provinces of China, they've built entire modern metropolises, cities. Uh, I'm talking about uh, like building something equivalent of Dallas, and nobody lives in it. And it's not one, it's several. You can actually watch YouTube videos of this. It's kind of eerie. You have an entire city. It'd be like building Frisco, but nobody moved in. Yeah, they, they did everything right. They built a perfect infrastructure. I mean, there's freeways, there's high-rises, there's apartment buildings, there's homes, uh, but there's one difference. There's no people. <laughs> and it's kind of strange, and the reason why it made the news is because this is a remarkable contradiction. Why would you build an elaborate city for no one to move into. And China has these strange uh, answers as to why they've done this. But isn't that strange? I mean, the highways have no traffic. The apartments, it's like one in a hundred somebody might live in one. Uh, you go in a, they got shopping malls. You go in there, and maybe one in a dozen stores is open, and even then they're open temporarily throughout the day, and hardly anybody comes to visit. It's really strange. Uh, you know what they're doing with them? People are going there to take uh, wedding pictures. Because no one's there and they've got the whole place to themselves. It's really, really strange. It's a total contradiction. Everything has been prepared. The foundations of the city are laid. And everything that they did was right. But there's no response by the people. I guess China wants 
in the future here for millions of its population to move there, try to get them out of more congested areas of town. But think about that. That's like the Apostle Paul. He labored properly. Uh, go back to the beginning of chapter 2. He did everything right, right? He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, verse 1, that our coming to you was not in vain. You see that? He didn't labor among them in vain. Same thing that he feared with the Galatians when he told them, I, 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 you know, I fear that perhaps I labored over you in vain. Why? Because the Galatian situation, different than the Thessalonian situation, the Galatian situation is such that the people were threatening apostasy. And so that too would prove to, that'd be like people moving to these Chinese providences and then immediately moving out. It would make no sense. It would be a total contradiction. And in the same way here, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, we did everything right. Our motives were right. Our motives were pure. Everything that we taught, it was not an error. It was orthodox. It was the right gospel. And the only proper response to this, of course, is faith. These Thessalonians came into the apostolic church. They came into the stream of orthodoxy. And this is, this is so important for us today brothers and sisters, because I think among our church and among our circles, I think a high view of the local church is kind of assumed. You know, we write books like Nine Marks and How to Be a Good Church Member and those kinds of things. But if you start broadening out to broader evangelicalism, this is not at all understood. Uh, people have a very low view of the local church. They don't see the importance of joining a church. They don't see the importance of ministering in the church. They don't see the importance of attending the church. It's kind of like, well, we'll go if we feel like it. Uh, how many people do you meet on the street all the time? Friends, neighbors, co-workers that tell you, well, yeah, absolutely, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. In other words, I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. I don't believe in organized religion. We've already heard all the mantras, and they're all wrong. They're all wrong. These Thessalonians heard the gospel from the apostles, and they established a biblical apostolic church. They were the preachers. This is also responsibility, not just for the people, but for the preacher. Look carefully there at that verse with me again. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, what for, what for what it really is, the Word of God. I want to draw your attention to the object of the preacher's task, which is to preach what? What did they hear from the apostles? Well, they heard the Word of God. In other words, this is what they were to preach. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the Word. In other words, this is the central message of the apostles and of any preacher, evangelist, expositor, any herald of the Bible, anybody who communicates or, 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 or is pretending to communicate the Christian message has his or her marching orders. It is the gospel. It is the word of God that you preach. It is not your personality. It is not, you know, anything like that. Uh, one commentary actually focused on this very powerfully. He says, this is a Gene Green's commentary in the pillar a New Testament set. He says, the message that was preached, he says, well, this message was not a philosophical discourse on the means to the virtuous life or a self-help seminar on how to overcome personal and social issues as the gospel is frequently portrayed in our era. It was the Word of God which powerfully transformed their lives. 
that's what it was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Look, I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And the reason he says that is because he says, I don't want your faith to rest on anything less powerful than the Word of God. Than the message of the cross. That was his message. It was the central message of the apostles. I, I tell you, I did, a, I did a, 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 res, a, ser, a search on all of the cognate verbs that deal with preaching. So you have like caruso and paralangeo and all these other verbs that, that speak about or that are in the context involve the preaching of the message, of some message. And I looked at the verb with every direct object. You know what the direct object, you know what it yielded more than anything else? It was something like this, that they preached Christ. They preached Christ Jesus. They preached Jesus. They preached the gospel. And yet, remarkably, so many today can't get that simple uh, a priority straight. They want to preach something else, uh, like the commentator mentions here. They want to preach philosophy. They want to preach politics. They want to preach a social gospel. They want to preach racial reconciliation. They want to preach good works. They want to preach anything except Christ crucified. Right? And yet, that's exactly what we are called to preach. We are called to preach Christ. Paul took this so far. I want you to see this. Paul took this so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 17, Paul goes so far with this Christocentric emphasis of his preaching that he even goes so far as to say, Christ did not even send me to baptize people, but to preach the gospel. Wow, that's almost like, well, is he like, you know, minimizing the importance of baptism? Baptists wouldn't like that. But he's not minimizing the importance of baptism as much as he is elevating the supremacy and the preeminence of preaching Christ and the gospel. That was his thrust in all of his ministry. And I think the centrality and the preeminence of the Word of God being preached in the church You know, all of our ministries have to be informed by the Word of God. That's why men's groups, ladies' groups, small groups, you know, Sunday schools, everything that we're doing, it's always geared to some sort of theological thing, right? It's not just a sewing circle where you come and, you know, knit hats for each other. No, 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 it's not not like a community service like the Boys and Girls Club. No, we come together and everything that we do is centered upon the revelation of God, So books help with that. Bible studies help with that. Everything that we do in discipleship helps with that. It really stresses the ambassadorship of the preacher. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is somebody that stands on behalf of someone else. That is exactly what the preacher is. The preacher, the would-be communicator of the Word of God and of the message of the cross, that is all that you are. You're just an ambassador. You're just a servant. You're just a messenger boy, messenger girl. That's all you're doing. You're a herald. We're not there to get fancy. We're not there to get inventive, intuitive. We're not there to, you know, try to figure out how to enhance the message somehow, make it more palatable for people. No, absolutely not. We read it in Sunday school that... The things of God are spiritually discerned. And those the natural man does not understand those things. We cannot possibly make that which is unintelligible in the spiritual realm intelligible for the non-spiritual person. Our duty is to just declare it to them. 
in the hopes that God in His great mercy and in His sovereign grace will open up their eyes and open up their heart so that they will be saved. And when you preach and when you communicate the gospel message that way, you can rest assured that you have done your duty, that you have done what God wants you to do. And don't strive about, well, maybe I wasn't forceful enough, or maybe I wasn't convincing enough, or maybe I wasn't compassionate enough, or maybe I wasn't funny enough. No, 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 I'm serious, funny. People think they got to be funny to communicate the message of the gospel. Well, that's not really our job. Paul says in chapter 1, or chapter 2 of this chapter earlier, remember he says that he came uh, not with flattery of speech. In other words, the reason why his ministry was so biblical is because it was rooted in sincerity. He wasn't trying to be somebody that he's not. He wasn't trying to come across as hyper-spiritual. He wasn't trying to sound like Spurgeon or the Puritans. He was, and he wasn't up there trying to sound like some famous preacher that he knew about, right? I mean, Lord help us. We all try to imitate MacArthur in a lot of ways. But none of us are John MacArthur, and we should stop trying to be. Our desertia teaches a homiletics class at Western Seminary, and he says, if I hear my students trying to sound like John Piper or John MacArthur immediately you fail. <laughs> I thought, boy, that's going to be tough for some of us, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> we want to be like our heroes. But you know what I mean. What God desires from us the most is that the gospel comes from us from a sincere heart. I really think that's where the power is. I think that's where the power is. It's not even the power of, well, what formula did you follow? Well, what, whose method of evangelism did you follow? Or did you follow the, the, the guideline that you were given in that book or that track? I think people appreciate more than anything authenticity, that you mean it from your heart, that you're sincere about your faith, that you actually care about them. And stop being concerned that you're conforming to somebody's formula of how you're supposed to do things. Just preach Christ. Give Him the raw, rugged cross and let God take care of the rest. Right? Secondly, I think that we also benefit from Scripture the most when Scripture is received as divinely authored, you saw that in the text, right? Not only that they receive the word from the official teachers of the church, the apostles, you know, Paul and his missionary companions, uh, Silas and Timothy, but also on top, on top of that, or was it Silas and Titus in here? Silvanus and, well, who, Silvanus who is Silas, and Timothy. But not only were the messengers the official officers, if you would, of the New Covenant, New Testament church, but also they received it as divinely authored, divinely inspired. Look at what it says. He says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Also, a correction on the translation there. For what it really is, uh, I guess the word really is really not in the Greek. <laughs> it's actually the word uh, aletheos, which is truth. Uh, or, you know, here functioning adverbally, it is truly, what it truly is. But the root word is true, right? This is what it is in truth. This is what reality is. So what he's saying is that the reason why he is so thankful for their conversion is because they saw the gospel for what it is. They saw the gospel for what it is. And let me tell you something. This verse right here, 
Oh boy, if this verse right here would have been taken serious back in the, the, the turn of the 19th century, where, you know, theological liberalism was just exploding, right? Uh, then, man, the church could have been saved a whole lot of pain because had these liberal theologians and liberal seminary scholars and teachers and whatnot, these German higher critics, had they taken this, this verse serious, then they would have understood that what they were doing by viewing Scripture as less than the Word of God some sort of, you know, sub-inspired document, right, where it really isn't inspired. I mean, this is where we part ways with people like Karl Barth, who declared that the Bible is not really inspired, he would say. It's that when you read the Bible and you have a personal moment with the Bible, you have some sort of spiritual experience with the Bible, then the Bible becomes inspired to you. What? That's a different doctrine of inspiration to me. But that's what neo-orthodoxy was all about. It was just a, a different way to repackage an old liberal view of what the Bible is. No, the Word of God is exactly that, the Word of God. I know that's a weighty statement, but it's true. To believe in the divine inspiration and authorship of Scripture is the difference between liberalism and orthodoxy. It is the difference between heaven or hell. I believe that with all my heart. I was once working construction in a gentleman's house. I was uh, doing some, some drywall work for him. And uh, all of a sudden I started noticing in his house all these theology books. I got really excited. And then I looked over and there and behold were all the works of Karl Barth. And I thought, hmm, maybe he's Bardian. Probably. <laughs> and so we started talking, you know, I started talking to him naturally about theology. Oh, I saw your books and blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, the discussion got to neo-orthodoxy where this really kind old gentleman began to tell me all the reasons why my view of inspiration was wrong and how that the Bible is actually not objectively inspired by God. And again, it goes back to the subjectivism, really ultimately of Albert Schweitzer, by the way, but that's really what it was. And, and I told him, you, re- you realize that this, what this means, and I, I think I told him something to the effect of, you know, we're not uh, brethren. We don't have spiritual fellowship because of your view of what the Bible is. We, we don't have spiritual fellowship, and we're not on the same page. You know, I believe that in order to be a Christian, you have to meet, at some minimum, you have to believe the Bible is the Word of God. <laughs> if you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, I mean, then what is it? It's just the word of man. It's just good advice, just therapeutic nonsense so that you can follow in your life these spiritual maxims. No, it is the word of God. It declares itself to be that. It is the self-declaring, self-authenticating word of God, needing no external verification, no external authentication. We do not authenticate the Bible, brothers and sisters. As much as I love, I just got a newsletter from Daniel Wallace, uh, uh, professor down in uh, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. You guys see the great work that Daniel Wallace is doing with the manuscripts, right? He's going all around the world photocopying the rarest Greek manuscripts that we have, and it's amazing work. He raises millions of dollars to go do this, and he goes and, and some of these manuscripts are so rare that it's literally upon turning the page, click, you take a picture of it, and it disintegrates. I mean, that's how rare some of the stuff he's dealing with is. 
And yet, all of the manuscript and textual criticism work, that fine work that they are doing, in no way establishes whether or not the Bible is the Word of God or not. That is not based on empirical data. It's, uh, the scripture is taken on its own merit. And uh, before I go into a whole apologetical thing on that, this is what the Apostle Paul is thanking God for. These Thessalonians didn't need to go and chase down every argument on manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. It was the power of the Word of God. It was the power of the message. The Word of God took root in their life. And the power of the cross, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proof was in the pudding. They believed on the message and they were supernaturally changed. That's what Christianity is. It is a supernatural religion with supernatural power. How else do you explain the conversion of somebody like the Apostle Paul? But by the divine power of God and the power of the cross. It's exactly what it is. This is a great dividing line. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just to see this, and you know, when, when Paul says in Thessalonians that they heard the word, that word is preeminently concerning the gospel. It's not just that they heard, you know, any aspect of God's Word, any part of God's Word. I think this applies to all of God's inscripturated Word, but really what Paul probably has in the forefront of his mind is the gospel message, the message of Christ crucified, that that's what they heard and that's what they responded to, and that's what they accepted as divinely inspired. And Paul says the same thing in 1 Cor, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, he says, "...for the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing." Notice there, folks, this is not neutrality. You understand? This is not unbelievers having an assessment of biblical Christianity and the message of Christianity and just coming to some neutral position. You can't. You have to either recognize it as the wisdom of God contained in the message of the cross or your final estimation of it is that it's folly and it's not worth giving your life for. That's, that's really where it's all headed. He says, but to us who are being saved, what is it? It is the power of God. There's Thessalonians right there. That's exactly what happened to them. It was the power of God that changed them. And he says, it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set it aside. In other words, God chose through the apparent paradoxical foolishness of the cross to destroy the false wisdom of this world. Incredible, right? That's what he did. Therefore, Paul asked the following rhetorical questions. Where's the wise man? How can you claim wisdom once God has set aside your wisdom and turned your your wisdom into rubble through the cross? You have no wisdom left. Uh, It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans 1 when he says that people are without excuse. It's literally, the word is no apologia. You know what that word is, right? No defense. They're without a defense for their position. And that's what the word of the cross has the power to do, to make you defenseless in your rejection of it and in your claim to some sort of epistemological wisdom. You don't have any. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? In other words, Paul is saying, who's going to bring forth a valid argument against the cross? You can't. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now again, let's understand what the wisdom of the world is. This doesn't mean God has made foolish mathematics or logic or, you know, um, you know it's not making a, you know, a, a, a mechanic foolish. Right? That's not what it's talking about. The wisdom of the world is that philosophy, that standard of thinking that ultimately on an ethical, philosophical, and moral level rejects God. That's what that's talking about. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom did not come to know God. That's, you know, Paul chooses this not just because that's something good to say, but because that's the most important thing to say. The most important thing to say is that at the end of the day, at the end of all the, the philosophizing, at the end of all the thinking, at the end of all the historians, and at the end of all the philosophers, after Plato is done and Aristotle is done, Socrates is done, after all of these people are done with all of their thinking, at the end of the day, they never came to know God. An incredible futility arises when you reject the wisdom of the cross. God was pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. In other words, Jews are seeking for a sign. And that, what that's referring to is not that they wanted verification for the truth of Christianity or that they're wanting to be discerning. No, they were in, mockingly in unbelief rejecting the claims of Jesus Christ. Big difference. And Greeks search for wisdom. In other words, Greeks are just simply in the search of wisdom itself. They are not in the search of the source of wisdom, who is Christ, who is God. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles folly. It's very important for us to believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture that the original autographs of the Bible have no errors There are no contradictions. There are no historical errors. There are no theological errors in the manuscripts. We don't believe in any error in the uh, what they call the autographs, which would be the original uh, manuscripts that were written. It's also inspired of God, which means that God moved His people to write. But let me bring in a third sort of nuance to that, and that's what I mentioned by the divine authorship of Scripture. See, because we may have a view of inspiration that what God did is He inspired men and then through their mind and their intelligence and their talent and their imagination, they produced a remarkable book about God. That is not what inspiration really is talking about. Inspiration has more to do with the fact that God is the true author behind all the authors of Scripture. That behind the human author stands the divine author. And that's why you have references in Scripture over and over where it talks about God speaking through an individual what to write. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, if anybody wants evidence that God is speaking through me, he says, let them know that the things I write to you are the commands of God. You see that? So ultimately, God Himself is the originator. He is the true source of the Bible's revelatory power. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Because the simple reality here is this. How does a person come to benefit from Scripture the most? When you see Scripture as supernatural, 
When you understand that Scripture is a divine revelation from God from another world, that it has broken into our world, that God, by revealing the Word of God to us, is speaking to us from another realm. And Paul doubles down on this, even for his own life, for his own ministry. He says in Galatians chapter 1, look at this. He says, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, he says, For I would have you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man. That means that man is not the source. Nor was I taught it. In other words, it wasn't simply a matter of learning the gospel message from somebody else. Paul is going even further that as a prophet of God, as an apostle of God, what he received was even more than that. It was more than what the other apostles could teach him. He says what? I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a claim that will differentiate whether or not you are liberal or orthodox. Whether or not you believe the Bible is just a collection of the histories of humanities or whether you believe the Bible is a supernatural book from God. That is an eternity of difference. Thankfully for us, we don't have to personally depend any longer on any, any of these sort of subjective theophanic revelations personally. We don't need to wait around, you and I, for God to, you know, we don't need to say with Paul, I receive the truth from a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be waiting for that, well, you'll be waiting for all eternity. I don't think God is going to personally, theophanically appear to you and give you some sort of divine revelation. But we do have the Word of God now inscripturated for us in a book. Isn't that marvelous? We get to carry this around, right? We don't need to go within sort of searching and wondering and waiting and seeking for some sort of subjective experience. Whether you're talking about the notions of liberalism, and that's what Albert Schweitzer and his liberalism taught, was that, that, that divine truth came ultimate through some sort of subjective experience that you had, or whether we have, you know, the abuses of some people in the charismatic movement, thinking that, you know, you have to wait for more revelation from God that you don't already have here. You can wait around and God can somehow give you even further revelation that's not contained here about specifics of your life. And that that is a revelation from God. Thankfully, we don't have to surrender to that sort of subjectivism. We have the objective Word of God. And we have the wisdom of God working in our hearts so that we know how to apply the Word of God to our lives. The final thing is this. The Scripture is received or benefits us the most when it is received for personal application. Go back to that verse one more time. He says, for this reason... He says, I also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Boy, that's a huge statement in and of itself. That's a sermon in and of itself. Because what he's doing, in a sense, it's almost as if he's personifying the word of God. Here, the word is depicted as having uh, uh, properties of, of personhood almost, that, he, that the word of God is working in us because that's the subject. The word of God is the one performing the work in us. Well, immediately our minds think about passages like Hebrews 4, and the word of God is living and active. 
active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing down to the division of soul and spirit, right? So we, we, we think of the dynamic of Scripture, and all of it here is aimed towards understanding that what the Word of God, why the Word of God was given to us was so that it would powerfully work within us. In other words, this is a reference to sanctification. This is God sanctifying us through His Word. What did Jesus say, in fact? John 17, 17. You know this verse. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. That's no different than what we're seeing here. That Paul is talking about the sanctifying power of the Word of God dynamically at work in our lives. Now, I, I want to look a little bit closer at this phrase here where he says, it's, it, where it says it works in you who believe or performs its work in you who believe. And just look at the, the, ver, the, the word here, works or performs its work, right? The, the grammar there is also very important because he uses a, a verb that is present and middle. Present means that it's an ongoing work. The work of God is ongoing in your life and never ceases. And the fact that it's in the middle tense really just emphasizes that the work is happening within the believer. In our hearts is where the work is happening. We are being transformed from within. Now, if that's true, I will go so far as to say that the middle voice here also conveys a sense of ownership, of duty, that if it's within us, then we have a duty to allow the work within us. Because I think that there is a way that if we're not careful, we can circumvent the work of the Word of God in our hearts. If we shut up our hearts, if we become cold or stale or lukewarm or hard-hearted, we can, we can hinder the Word of God from having its optimum effect in our life. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews illustrated this so well when he, he spoke of Israel in Hebrews chapter 2, where Israel, like the Thessalonians, they heard the Word of God. Same thing, just like the Thessalonians, they heard the Word of God and Israel heard the Word of God. And there was a generation in which they're in the wilderness that heard the Word of God, but what was missing? Faith. They did not mingle God's Word with faith and thus were ultimately laid low in the wilderness and did not enter into God's rest. Now there is a, there is a particularity about this verse. You notice Paul, so precise, right? So exhaustive, so careful. Notice what Paul says. He didn't just say, it performs its work in you, Period. But he goes so far as to say, it performs its work in you, and then he adds this all-important phrase, who believe. And actually, the subtitle participle there is, the believing ones. The believing ones. Maybe you guys know that phrase from James White constantly harking about some Calvinist thing or the other. But that's exactly right. Toy pistusine. All the believing ones here is talking about. So the believing ones are the ones in which the work of the Word of God is performed. That's important. You know why? Because the Word of God is not for everyone. Wow. There's a sense in which the Word of God is not for the masses. I say that. You know why? You can walk into Walmart. You can go into pharmacies. And you, you know what you see there. You see right next to, you know, 
you know, how to be a good person, influence people and friends and all of that. Right next to all those self-help books, there's a Bible promise book or there's a scripture memorization book or something like that. In other words, they just Oprah Winfreyize the Word of God. It's just some self-help manual. And everybody has it on their, on their bookshelf at home. And yet they're totally, completely devoid of religion. Completely, totally devoid of holiness. Completely, totally devoid of the life of God and the soul of man. And yet they have their Bible promise book sitting right there that they picked up at the cash register as they checked out at the pharmacy at CVS. What gives? What gives is that we've turned the Bible into this sentimental good luck charm. And we think that the Bible can have that sort of therapeutic effect on the masses if we just kind of promote it and package it and advertise it right. But the Word of God is not like other things. The Word of God is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. You can do that with the Word of man, but not with the Word of God. It's not just there to help you along the journey of your life. It's there to either transform your life or it's there to condemn your life. It's there either to save your life or it is there to damn your life. The Word of God is, is you know, according to the Bible, you know, uses all of these different uh, amazing descriptions about the Word of God, that the Word of God is this, the Word of God is that. The Word of God is powerful. Uh, Jeremiah said it's like a fire. It is like a hammer that crushes the nations. The Word of God is God's tool of judgment and wrath or salvation and peace, and life. So the would-be proclaimer, the would-be communicator of the Word of God, according to Paul, is a fragrant aroma, either of life to life or death to death, because that's what the Word of God is. It is not meant to be on a shelf like a bookend. Just just hold your clutter together. It's to transform your life. It's to change you from within. It's to conform you into the image of the Son. And this is exactly what was missing with Israel. And this is exactly what's missing in so many people today. They do not have a genuine affection for the Word of God because there's no genuine repentance. There's no genuine repentance because there's no decisive break with sin. There's no decisive break with sin because there's no actual faith in the Word of God. And then you're in this vicious cycle of unbelief. But Paul was so thankful. And you should too, brother and sister. Today I want to remind you why you ought to be grateful today for your own life. Whatever's going on. And come on, let's be honest. We all have a lot going on. I got news for you. In 10 years, you have a lot going on. Those, you know, you think they're a handful now. Wait till those kids grow up. <laughs> You're always going to have something going on. Finances will probably get harder, not easier. Health will probably get worse, not better. Culture will probably get more oppressive, not easier on the church. We're always going to have things going on, but thanks be to God that He saved us, He delivered us, He transformed us, and all because of the Word of God. Paul's thankful. Why? You know, we, we preach these precious letters of Scripture, and it could take, oh boy, Maybe a year to go through Thessalonians for me. But let's, let's be honest. They picked up this letter in the church and they read it. And it probably took them about, what, 15 minutes to read it? 
And so for the reader of Scripture, fresh in the mind of his thankfulness, thank God, we thank God, we thank God. Why is, it that, why is that thankfulness there and so pronounced? Because if you just go back to five minutes earlier in the reading of this letter, you would have heard these glorious words. In chapter 1, verse 9, what does he say? For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven who He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. You know what it means to wait for His Son from heaven? It means you don't apostatize. It means you don't backslide back into your old ways. It means that there has been a definitive break with sin in your life and now all that you are looking for and longing for is the eschaton. You're just looking for the glorification of your body and you will, when this kind of repentance is there, when the foundation is genuine, when salvation is spirit-wrought, you will for a lifetime persevere. You will for a lifetime wait for God's Son from heaven. Hey, let's pray it's not a lifetime, but it might be. It may be a lifetime. Trish and I, on the way home from vacation, we had this really adorable taxi driver that took us to the airport. This guy was 90 years old, still goes to work every day. And we start talking about, and you know, uh, I think Trish, you know Trish, are you a Christian? You get one of these, you know, the whole thing. And yes, absolutely, I've been a member of the Baptist church for, what did he say, Trish? 70 years? Wow. I thought, you know, when Jesus said, you know, the disciple says, Lord, if it's like this, who can be saved? Seems impossible. It's just impossible. The rich don't get saved? Well, then who can get saved? Jesus says, those that endure to the end will be saved. I have marveled at how, in light of the doctrine of, you know, let's just talk about theology, okay, but, you know, Calvinism, predestination, election, the decree of God. I understand all that. And typically where my mind goes is how difficult it will be for people to repent. How impossible. Like the disciples, that's where my mind goes. And yet Jesus, He responds with, those who endure to the end will be saved. And sometimes for us, we miss the fact that really the, what should amaze us and what should be almost like breathtaking is we got to make it to the end. i got to endure all the way to the end. Man, this week almost took me out. Where are you going to get the strength? Where are you going to get the perseverance? I'll tell you where. Avail yourself to the means of grace. Avail yourself to the work of the Spirit and avail yourself to the Word of God because it performs its work in you who believe. And part of that work is what? keeping you to the day of redemption, beginning and finishing the good work that God began, right? Or finishing the work that God began. And that's the power of God's Word in our life. It has that power to do that in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. I pray that above everything, as I was reading this, I thought, oh, 
That's a different sermon. I've got to be careful. Being a lover of the Bible. Being a lover of the Bible. You find yourself just picking up the Bible? Just picking it up because you just notice, where's my Bible? <laughs> Go get your Bible, right? Just spend time with it, read it, walk around the house like this with it. Right? And then just pull it out and just read a little something. By the way, I thought, I thought about this for you guys. Do you know how much stuff I'm working on theologically? <laughs> It'd probably blow your mind. I'm working on so much theological stuff right now. I can barely keep track with it on my mind. I told myself the other day, how much can one brain take? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I just started reading a hermeneutics uh, manual on Hebrew exegesis. This is impossible. I'm kidding myself. I'm never going to get this. Hebrew exegesis? I can't even do Greek exegesis half the time. And then I'm working on exactly the precise nature of the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace, and the new covenant, and how that progresses throughout redemptive history. And I thought to myself, okay, maybe my people are not going to do any of that, okay, or some of that. And then I thought, I don't care. You know, our church is kind of crazy for a reason, right? And so my question to you today because you are, before you're anything, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself sitting at his feet? Do you see, you know what a disciple means, mathetes? It means learner. Someone who learns. So my question to you is, I know what I'm working on. What are you working on today in the Bible? Theology? What are you working on? What doctrine are you hammering out for your kids? What are you working on today? What theology are you trying to understand because you don't understand any of it and every time they talk about it, it's like... <whistles> well, yeah, it'll probably stay that way if you never take the initiative to go. And guess what? We've got great books out there to help you with. I don't know if you've seen. Take a lot of time to do that for you guys because these books will help you to understand and become a greater student of Berean to rightly divide the word of truth. But really, I want you to write that down today, and if you can't write it down, then you need to repent. What are you working on today in the word of God? I bet you Jared is in like Second Kings or something. He's always in a book like that. But what are you in today? What theology are you trying to learn? Are you growing in? That's crucial. If I can get that accomplished today, oh man, a sermon may not be very good, but that was worth it. To get you more in the Word of God, laboring to understand. And God will give you understanding as you consider these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us a heart of devotion today. Lord, we know that our lives can so easily be complicated by various trials and tribulations and distractions, frankly. And yet, Lord, we pray that our heart would not grow stale, that the light would not grow dim, that the fire would not smolder. And would you, O oh God, by your Spirit and for your glory, would you fan into flame that gift that you've given us would you fan into flame the desire for your word, the desire to know you better, to be a more devoted disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ? Help us, O oh God. Time is short. Life is short. And then we face you. 
So we pray, Lord, that we would be increasing, every one of us, whatever level we're at, whatever sphere we're at, whatever season of life we're at, help us to be growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ together, collectively. Let us be a people that abides in Your Word. Because as You told us, if we abide in Your Word, then we abide in Your love. And so, Lord, would You give us a heart full of affections for Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.